and I would ask you please to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, please. I know it seems like forever ago, but if you remember, we took as our theme for this year that thought, that question, are you willing? And so as we work our way, continue to work our way through this text of Scripture, Romans 14, down to chapter 15, verse 7, we are going to be looking at a series of principles and we're going to continually ask ourselves, are we willing to practice these principles so that there can be unity in our church? Remember, chapters 12 through 15, at least the first part of chapter 15, the overall theme of that section of the book of Romans is unity, unity in the gospel, unity for the glory of God. Chapter 14 is actually a chapter I have never heard preached. Where if I did, I probably slept through it because I don't ever remember hearing a message on Romans chapter 14. And I'm not trying to indict anyone or any preacher or any movement when I say what I'm about to say. As a fundamentalist, Romans chapter 14 may create some heartburn for us. Because Romans chapter 14 is all about unity even when you disagree. Unity even when you disagree. And see, sometimes as fundamentalists, and I am one, if you don't know what that is, you can talk to me about it later. I'm not a radical Islamic. I'm a biblical fundamentalist. As a biblical fundamentalist, sometimes we are too quick to pull the trigger rather than, to, rather than work to build unity. And so chapter 14, we're going to spend a good deal of time here making sure that we are clear on these principles. I do want to start with a quote this morning, and I don't know if you can read it clearly from where you are, but let me just read it to you. It's a, what one preacher said about this particular text, and Paul's words to them, to the Romans, were their first guidelines following on the heels of the letter from the Jerusalem Council seven years earlier. Now, let me just kind of fill in some blanks here. The Jerusalem Council was called so that the issue of Gentiles receiving the gospel and becoming part of the church could be settled. You see, because there were some Jewish believers and some Jewish um, unbelievers who felt like that the Gentiles coming into the church needed to follow the law. They needed to keep the statutes. They needed to follow the ceremonies. They needed to do the sacrifices. They, they needed to do everything that the Jewish people had up until that time been required, or at least up until the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, had been required to do in order to be considered Jewish. 
to be a part of the Jewish nation, to be a part of the people of God. Now, Gentiles were coming to Christ through the gospel and they were joining the church and some of the Jewish fathers and some of those who lived by the law, the Jewish law, felt like the Gentiles needed to do the same thing. Well, there was a group of preachers and apostles who met in Jerusalem to settle the issue. Did the Gentiles have to do the law, keep the law to be a part of the church? And the conclusion was no. Why was that the conclusion? Because that's the biblical conclusion. We don't have to keep the law to be a part of the family of God. We don't have to keep the law to stay a part of the family of God. It has nothing to do with our salvation or our sanctification. And so the Jerusalem Council tried to clear that up. But for some of the Jewish, strict Jewish law keepers, that wasn't enough. But now Paul writes this letter, Romans, about seven years after the Jerusalem Council, where they tried to get this thing settled. The law wasn't necessary for salvation or sanctification. Now he's writing the book of Romans, all right? And his letter to the Galatian churches, perhaps as early as AD 48 or 49. Uh, in other words, now uh, this, this quote is referring to the book of Galatians. You had the Jerusalem Council back in AD 50, now you come along a few years later, uh, 48 or, or, or so, uh, to um, the book of Galatians when it was written. And Paul had to actually correct the Galatians because they were thinking the same thing. And he confronted Peter about this. And, and so, so you, you have this division that's still there, although it shouldn't be. And the church in Corinth, around 55, he's going he's to write to the church at Corinth, and we'll refer to that as we go through chapter 14, really about the same issue, having to keep the law, having to follow the, 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 the holy days, and, and eating meats offered to idols, and, 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 and things that the Bible, New Testament, is, says are not really necessary for salvation. And in the church in Corinth, where the same issues were addressed, it is to the modern church's shame that we have been living under the new covenant for nearly 2,000 years and have full access to Paul's guidance on disputable matters and yet still judge one another. And I think that hits the nail on the head. We have plenty of Bible which makes very clear that there are matters of opinion. <coughs> and just because someone doesn't share your opinion on things you feel very biblically strong about, We shouldn't judge them. We can have unity with them. And that's what chapter 14 is going to help us do. Now, we're going to start at verse 1. And we're not going to get much further, okay? Because I want to clarify some terms 
that I think we need to have some clear we have, need to have clear understanding before we go any further into the into the principles that we're going to be dealing with. I want to make sure we are clear on the terms Paul uses here and he uses in other places. Because if we aren't clear on our terms, we're going to come out the wrong way on the other end. All right. Look at verse number one. Him that is weak. Let's talk about that term, weak. Now, I want to give you a principle for studying your Bible. All right? I want to give you a principle for Bible study. Always, when you study your Bible, let the context of the Scripture itself guide you in defining terms. Let the context of the Scripture itself guide you in defining terms. Here's why I say that. Because some Bible terms actually have different meanings or different shades of meaning depending on how they're being used. This is a good illustration of what I'm talking about. Paul uses this word often. He uses it more to talk about the idea of being weak in faith or weak in conscience, but he also uses it in terms of being weak in your body. For instance, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and warned them about abusing the Lord's Supper, he said many are weak, (coughs) illustration, many are weak and sickly among you. He uses the same term. Now, when we come to chapter 14, verse number one, I think as you read through, you probably get the understanding he's not talking about physical weakness, although that's what he's talking about when he's talking to the church of Corinth in that particular case. So you let the context of Scripture guide you in defining terms. We're not talking about physical weakness here. How do we know that? Because he clarifies, he says, weak in what? What does he say? Say it. Weak in faith. Not weak in body. But the idea of being weak and sickly <clears throat> will help us to understand what he means here about weak in faith. When you're weak in body, you've lost strength. You're not well. This word means to be weak and vulnerable in your spiritual life. That's what it means here in chapter 14, verse 1. The idea of Paul describing people who are weak in faith or weak in conscience is the way he uses it most. He uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to describe those like he does here, weak in conscience. Paul also says that the law could not justify believers because it was weak. Now, now obviously the word of God is going to accomplish everything 
that God intended. So when Paul was describing the law as weak, it, he was simply saying that, that it didn't fully accomplish all that God intended as far as salvation is concerned. It came up short. So let's take some of those ideas and bring them into chapter 14, verse 1. Him that is weak in faith. What are we talking about? We're talking about someone who's vulnerable. We're talking about someone who has maybe some limitations. We're talking about someone who, who's missing something. Is that, is that a, I think a fair way to say it? Like the law? When, when Paul uses the term weak here, he's not using it as a term to insult anybody. He's actually describing all of us. Because there are areas in every believer's life where we're lacking. Right? There are areas in every believer's life where we're missing something. Okay, so weak. Let's look at, now, he doesn't use the term in chapter 14, verse 1, but I do want to contrast it. So go down to chapter 15 and verse 1. Chapter 15 and verse 1. We then that are strong. All right. So he uses two terms here to basically sum up the spiritual life of everybody who reads this letter. Strong and weak. Let's talk about the idea of what it means to be strong. Well, if we contrast it with weak, where a weak person is limited, a strong person is accomplishing. <coughs> where a weak person is unable, a strong person is able or capable. Where maybe a strong person is limited in understand, or excuse me, a weak person is limited understanding or ability. A strong person is competent. And that doesn't mean that the weak person is stupid. It just means that they, they haven't come to the point where the strong person has in some areas. But again, I want to emphasize this fact and I want to make this very, very clear. There are areas where all of us are weak and there are areas where all of us are stronger than others. But I want you to understand very clearly. Paul is not elevating one above another. He does include himself with the strong. You saw that in chapter 15 verse. We that are strong. And I think what he's referring to there is. He's simply saying I'm strong on the things that you guys are having disagreements about. I don't think Paul is saying, you look at me, you do everything that I do and you'll come out okay. What he's saying is, these aren't issues for me. But he's also being very gracious in saying what they're very real issues for some other people. These Christians who are strong or capable with respect to the faith believe that certain practices 
are legitimate, are okay for believers. On the other hand, those that Paul calls weak are <coughs> excuse me are not to the point where they are okay with these things. Now what things are we talking about? There are three issues in chapter 14 and 15. And let me make clear again. We cannot draw direct parallels between what we read here and even some of the same things that we have today. I think... I think there is an issue today with alcoholic believers. I think the Bible is clear. Again, there are people who disagree with me, but the, the, the parallel is not even the same with the alcohol consumption in Romans 14 with the alcohol consumption today. But the principles are the same. All right? I hope that's clear. The three issues that you have in chapter 14 or in the church of Rome, let's say it this way, what they ate, what they drank, and what they celebrated. What they ate, what they drank, and what they celebrated. And they all had to do, all right, they all three of those had to do with Old Testament issues. That's why I say that the parallels are not the same. They all had to do with keeping the law issues. But I do think we can, before we go on, we can say this. There are areas of disagreement, legitimate areas of disagreement. The Bible calls them in chapter 14, verse 1, disputable disputations. We'll talk about that in a second. There are areas where you may think it's okay because the Bible doesn't forbid it specifically, where others will say, I don't think it is okay, and they have very good reasons for saying what they say. You may be strong as far as your opinion on one thing. Someone may be weak in the sense that they can't do what you are capable of doing in the sense of doing what you're doing. But Paul says, even when we disagree, and here, here is the big picture, folks. Even when we disagree on things the Bible gives room for disagreement on, we can still have unity. The problem is for thousands of years, we as believers have expected other believers to live like us or we don't think they're spiritual. And that's the issue in the church at Rome and that's what Paul is saying has got to stop. These are not derogatory terms, so don't let them become derogatory terms. Don't let them. Just because someone is stronger or you or weaker than you in the sense of what they can and cannot do, what they decided to do or not do, don't think of them any differently because of your disagreements. These are not terms of inferiority or superiority. This is not Paul saying 
You who are weak, well, you just need to shape up. He doesn't say that. Matter of fact, you won't find in this text of Scripture where Paul says to the weak people, you need to change. He doesn't do that. Not that they don't. Not that we don't. But these aren't terms of inferiority or superiority and we should not make them that. So weak, there are some things we can't do and we have good reasons for it. Strong, we're, we're okay with doing certain things that the Bible isn't clear that we shouldn't do, that the Bible gives freedom on. And, and we can do those things and we can do them to glorify God and that's okay. So we're weak in some ways and we're strong. There's some things we won't do because the Bible, we believe the Bible says don't do it. And there are some things we do because we don't believe the Bible says don't. Are you thoroughly confused now? Let's talk about another term. Let's talk about the term faith here. Him that is weak in the faith. All right. Again, we have to let context help us define terms. And sometimes, in order to do that, we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. I want you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. One of the things that Paul does when he writes to the church at Corinth, really basically beginning in chapter number, I think it's 7, is it's almost as if he, he's, well, he, he says, concerning the things you wrote. In other words, Apparently the church at Corinth sent Paul a letter or some letters asking certain questions. And and one of the things that Paul does when he writes back is he answers those questions. As you see here in verse number, chapter number eight. Now as touching things offered at idols. In other words, apparently there was a question about whether they should eat meat offered to idols. Now here's the deal. Some people in the church of Corinth said, absolutely not. No. Some of them had been idol worshipers and they knew what happened with the meat offered. And so, so in other, in, not to have anything to do with idolatry or not to have any, any association with idolatry, they said, no, I, I won't do that. There were others in the church of Corinth said, you know what, an idol is nothing. Paul says that, an idol is nothing. So I don't have a problem eating meat. So you see, there's, there's similar issues between Corinth and Rome over what they ate and why they ate it. So we have a parallel text here. Now, go down to verse number. Uh, let's see. Seven. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, the knowledge that an idol is nothing, for some with conscience <coughs> of the idol under this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now he doesn't use the term faith here. He uses the term conscience. <coughs> Look at verse number 11. 
And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ. But when ye sin so against the brethren, you, you wound their weak conscience. You sin against Christ. Now, we won't take time to explain the ins and outs of what he's saying. But I just want you to see. Now, go back to chapter 14, verse 1. He kind of gives us a clear picture here of really what he's talking about in, in his letter to the Romans. He says... Him that is weak in faith. He's not talking about salvation faith. We do know that. He's talking to believers. We know that. So when he uses the term him that is weak in faith, it kind of, it kind of sounds like the same kind of thing he's saying to the Corinthians as far as conscience, growing in the faith, sanctification kind of faith. Conscience issues kinds of faith. You see, later on in chapter 14, and one of the principles we're going to look at, Paul will say, if it's not a faith, it's sin. If it's not done by faith, it is sin. And in essence, what he's essentially saying is this. If you can't go to the Bible and say, God is okay with this, then don't do it. Because it wouldn't be a faith. It wouldn't be with a clear conscience that you either do or don't do what you do or don't do. So when he uses the term faith in verse number one, it's not salvation. It's growth. It's conscience. It's what the Holy Spirit allows in our lives and what we believe God allows in our lives by faith. All right. And I want to look at this term. Look at verse number three. Or back to verse number one. Let me show you where I'm headed here. Him that is weak in the faith, receive, receive, receive. Oh, I wish we could. I wish, I wish that word would, would drive itself into our thinking. Receive. It means to welcome. It means to take in. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean just to shake hands and ask how you're doing. It means you welcome with open arms. Look at the attitude Paul says we ought to have toward people we disagree with. It ought to be open arms rather than pushing away or closed fists. Now I want you to look with me at several verses, starting at verse three. Let him that eateth despise him that... Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. All right, there's your first issue. What they ate, what they didn't eat. And Paul is saying, if, it's, if you're okay with eating certain vegetables, you ought to be okay with those who don't eat vegetables. He uses the term vegetables, by the way. Herbs. <laughs> Herbs, it's, it's vegetables, really. All right. Now, I don't want to minimize what Paul is saying, but some of us have a real problem with certain vegetables, and some of us wonder about the people who have the problem with the vegetables. You know what? Vegetables isn't the issue. Unity is. Get the point. And here's our spirit. 
Let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received them. Go down to verse 4. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? Go down to verse 5. One man esteemeth one day. Here's the second issue. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. You know what the word judge is in that verse twice. Do you see it? What do you think the word is? Esteem. Esteem. Don't judge one day to be more important. Some people do. But if you don't judge other days to be unity. Go down to verse number 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Go down to verse number 12. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. And we could go to verse 22. Hast thou faith, have it to thyself. Happy is he that condemneth not. There's the word, judge, condemn. Now, here again, we go back to the principle we started as far as Bible study. Let the context of Scripture guide you in your defining of terms. You have the term judge here, translated different ways, used different ways, but it's all the same word. So how do we know what we're talking about? Well, again, context helps. And in the overall context of all of Scripture, some of you have already thought of a verse that a lot of people quote when they want people to leave them alone. Don't judge me. Why? And what they'll say is, the Bible says what? Judge not that you be not judged. You know what? The Bible does say that. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 1, as a matter of fact. The Bible also says this. In John chapter 7, verse 24, judge not according to the appearances, but judge righteous judgment. You know what? The Bible never forbids fruit inspecting in a person's life. The Bible does forbid condemning what you see but we're also guilty of that aren't we that is so easy for us to do it is so easy for us to have a condemning spirit toward people who disagree with us or don't look like us or don't talk like us I mean if you watched any of the stuff that happened in Washington this past week you know what you were judging what you saw on television and you were judging who you saw on television Weren't you? Weren't we? We were judging motives. We were judging appearances. We were judging just simply based on the fact that some people showed up to certain events. We're so quick to do this because we want to condemn others, but we don't want to be condemned ourselves. So in Romans chapter 14, when the Bible says, Don't judge those who have different opinions than you have. 
What is Paul saying? He's saying don't condemn them. But both sides do it. The weak do it to the strong and the strong do it to the weak. The weak say about the strong, I don't understand how they could do that. If they were really a Christian, they wouldn't do that. The strong says about the weak, well, if they were as spiritual as I am, then they would be okay with it. Do you get the point? Don't condemn. Build unity. Some of us have taken this idea to the extreme. We judge people based on the kind of music they listen to. We judge people based on the kind of clothes they wear. We judge people based on the kind of church they go to. We judge people based on the kind of language that they use. And I'm not saying that those things aren't telling about some things, but what I am saying is this. God is the only one who condemns. And that's what the scripture is. Or let me rephrase that. God is the only one who has the right to pass judgment. Let me say it that way. Then finally you have this word in verse 1. The phrase is doubtful disputations. Disputations. Basically what this phrase means is that there are some things that simply come down to our opinions because God doesn't have clear statements. God does about core issues. Remember we talked about that. God has clear statements on core issues. But there are some things that God may give a principle, but He doesn't give a clear command. There are some things that we can disagree about. Another way of translating that phrase, doubt through dis. Doubtful disputations is quarrels about opinions. In other words, we could say it this way. The one that is weak in his conscience, welcome, but not to quarrel about your opinions. Have you ever met someone with the spiritual gift of contention? It just seemed like that all they wanted to do was argue about what they thought. Don't you just love being around people like that? Now, Paul says, Scripture says, God says, welcome people you disagree with. 
Don't be afraid of them. Don't keep them at arm's length. Don't be afraid that they might change your mind. <coughs> you see, there are some things more important than our opinions. Like people. Like the church. Like unity. Like the gospel. Like the glory of God. This term is not referring to what God clearly states. If God says it, whether we believe it or not, that does settle it. But the term is referring to our opinions about some things in Scripture. And there are areas where we can disagree, and it's okay. Because the bigger issue is not our opinions. The bigger issue is the gospel and his glory. So let me ask you some questions. Are you willing to consider fellow believers to be more important than your opinions? Are you? Are we? Are we willing to pray that God will help us to overcome or reject a condemning spirit? Because all of us have one. And are we willing to battle for unity rather than battle with each other? Let's pray, please. Father, I pray that you'd use your word in all of our lives today. I pray that you would make us willing to welcome one another, but not to quarrel about our opinions. Help us to reject a condemning spirit. Help us to battle for unity, not battle with each other. With heads bowed and eyes closed, as God is dealing with you right now, you you spend some time talking to the Lord. Our pianist will play a hymn of invitation, and just while you're seated, you talk to God about what we've talked about today. study tonight on theology.
See how great theology. I want you before tonight to think about this question. What is the ultimate purpose of theology? What is the <coughs> ultimate purpose of theology? So what's the glorify God? Okay. What is the ultimate purpose for you studying God? That's what theology is, the study of God. What is the ultimate purpose of you studying God? And we'll talk about that tonight. This will start to. Thank you so much for being here. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Brother Roger, would you do that for us, please, sir?